This morning we continue in our series on Judges, uh, and today we begin to consider the life of uh, the best-known judge to us, and that's Samson. When someone mentions Samson's name, um, we immediately think of feats of strength that he displayed, but if we spend any time in the scriptures reflecting on his life, we're also struck by his fits of weakness. Um, there might be a tendency that we would have uh, in this day and age to, uh, to view the exploits of Samson almost like we would a Marvel or a D, D, uh, DC uh, superhero uh, who has a particular weakness like Superman and his kryptonite. But if we uh, do that, we're really missing the point of these Old Testament narratives. And again, we need to keep in mind as we look at God's Word this morning that this is not as much a story about Samson as it is a story about God and his commitment to his people. So if you have God's Word with you, uh, if you please turn to Judges chapter 13. Uh, it also, um, it's also printed in the bulletin and behind us on the screen. We'll be looking at uh, chapters 13 and 14 this morning. Uh, but before we do, let's pray and ask for God to go before us. Father, as we consider these uh, familiar and sometimes seemingly bizarre stories from the life of Samson, we ask that you would give us eyes to see what you are desiring to show us, and that you would give us hearts that are receptive to your word, that we might continue to be renewed uh, after, uh, in the image of your Son through the work of your Holy Spirit. So now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts Truly be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Judges 13, we'll be reading 1 through 5 and then to the end of the chapter. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then to the end of the chapter, verse 24. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtel. Chapter 14. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days he returned to take her, 
And he turned aside to see the, the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hand and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and his mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to, to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, Put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me if you, uh, you do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people and you've not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I've not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that the feast lasted. And on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him hard. And she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you'd not plowed with my heifer, you would have not found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments of those uh, whom he had told the, uh, gave the garments to those to whom he had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. Interesting stories. You know, one of the most widely watched television shows um, today with over 18 million viewers is the show This Is Us, and I'm sure a number of you watch it. Uh, as viewers are allowed to peer into the lives of the Pearson family. And there are a number of reasons why this show has captivated so many. Um, one of them being it portrays real life uh, of each member of this family, flaws and all. And because of that, uh, we tend to relate to it because we can see ourselves. We get glimpses of ourselves in our own lives and our own families as we consider theirs. And there's another reason, and that's this, that Although uh, that through flashbacks throughout the show, each, each episode, we have flashbacks into earlier times in people's lives. And so by means of that, we're enabled to see more deeply into what they're presently wrestling with because of where they've come from. Well, in a way, that's what the writer uh, of Judges is doing here with Samson because he begins with a very detailed birth narrative, something he hasn't previously done with the other judges. Um, God wants us, as readers of his word, to consider Samson's actions against the backdrop of his upbringing. And as we do, you will see they will make Samson's actions even harder to comprehend and harder for us to swallow. So join with me as we walk through this text. In chapter 13, verse 1, we're given the context. Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so he gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. 
Now, with those words, we realize again that we're entering into the cycle of God dealing with his sinful people that we've seen all throughout uh, the book of Judges, where there's rebellion, and then there's um, retribution on God's part, and there's repentance, and then there's rescue. At this time, Israel's primary oppressor were the Philistines. Uh, The Philistines were sophisticated uh, people culturally, uh, seafaring people. They would come in, they'd sell all down the, up and down the uh, Mediterranean coast. And as they grew and as their power grew, uh, they would expand and they kept moving further inland, uh, so much so they continued to push God's people away. And eventually they began to rule over them and led them into the false worship of their gods, which we read about in Judges chapter 10, verses 6 and 7. And you know the uh, Philistines, you know, these are the people that, King David and King Saul dealt with for so many years, their constant enemy. Well, that's who we're talking about here. So we've got this cycle where they're in an impression. But when we have this cycle, one thing's missing that's, not, that's typically there when we have these cycles written in Judges, and that's this. There is no repentance voice to God in this narrative, uh, nor is there any cry for God to deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. Bottom line, life was pretty comfortable for them under Philistine rule. And uh, we're given no indication that they were being violently oppressed in any way. So we have a situation that their help is not being sought. But God, out of his relentless love and grace, again, initiates their rescue. Again, emphasizing his commitment to his people, he begins to rescue his people. So he initiates his plan, but it's not an immediate plan like it often was with the judges. where we'd raise up a man who was right there among them, But what he did this time is he brought a man from before he was conceived and raised him for his judge. Again, he works through one he calls even for this man as a twinkle in his mother's eye because she was barren. In fact, she had no twinkle and wasn't expecting one. And yet God provided one. So here we have God committed in his grace to deliver his people, but he's going to take a long-term approach to do so. Understanding that God chose to work this way um, in raising up a d- deliverer, reminds us there's another backstory uh, to this narrative. And that's not just what Samson does, but it's what God is, was doing and what God wanted to communicate to his people uh, through this narrative. So I want you to consider with me this morning three things, three main points of what God is wanting his people to realize as we reflect on Samson's early life. And that's this, the distinctiveness we possess, the danger we face, and lastly, the deliverer we need. First of all, from chapter 13, the distinctiveness we possess. Samson is called by God, and it's a miraculous birth. You read there in 13, 2 and 3, where an angel of the Lord appears to a barren woman. We're not even told her name other than she's the wife of Manoah. But she's told she would conceive and have a son, something her husband had a hard time putting his arms around. Uh, so much so, a lot of chapter 13 deals with him trying to figure this out. But she, he's told, she's told by the angel that, her son was to be a Nazarite. Now, a Nazarite was a man who took a special vow uh, of consecration for a designated period of time in which he could faithfully give himself to serve the Lord. In Numbers chapter 6, where we read about the Nazarite vow, we see there were three stipulations associated with this vow. First of all, the one who decided to take this vow would separate himself from wine and strong drink in fact, he was to have nothing to do with anything that came uh, off, the vine, off the grapevine. That meant no calves, no Chardonnays, 
No Welch's grape juice, no grapes, no raisins for a snack. He was supposed to avoid the vineyard. Totally. Nothing means nothing. Secondly, he, was, he wasn't to cut his hair as it would serve as an outward sign of his vow of separation. And lastly, he was not to go near a dead body, not even that of a family member, for it would render him unclean. Yet here, in the case of her son, God says, hey, this is not going to be a, temple, a temporary vow that your son takes, but rather this is one that I'm calling him to for the duration of his life. From the womb to his death, verse 7 tells us that. Samson's entire life from conception all the way through to his death was to be totally consecrated, totally consecrated and dedicated to serving the Lord. Now, what was the specific focus or nature of his call? We're told in verse 5 this. He would begin to, say, he would begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So we shift to the end of the chapter and we see this. He's born, he's given the name Samson. We see that he grew and the Lord blessed him. And then we're told this in the last verse, that the Spirit began to stir him, which means the Spirit began to push him out. It's time now, Samson, for you to go forth and serve me. Now, hearing these words as an Israelite, these words about God's special call and hand upon Samson, should have immediately served as a reminder to them that they too, as Israelites, had been set apart by God. For he'd chosen them, as we read about in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, as a people of his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples of the earth, they were his. So much so, he committed himself to be their God, and he entered into a covenant relationship, and he promised to be their God and a God to their children. In fact, he even said, I want you to bear a sign of that covenant love, and that's to be in circumcision. That's what will set you apart. As my people, they revealed that indeed they were distinct. Distinct even from the Philistines who did not practice circumcision. He made them a royal priesthood. He made them a holy nation. He blessed them. He promised to give them the the holy land, I mean the the promised land. Charged them not to make a covenant though when they entered the land. Not to make a covenant, not to show mercy to other nations, but to remain faithful only to him that they might worship and serve him alone. That was their calling. As we consider here this text this morning as readers, consider Samson's distinct calling and mindful of Israel's distinct calling, we're also reminded we too are to be a called out people. But those same words are recorded for us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, where we the church are called, for you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, we too, as God's people, are those who are called to be set apart from him. We're called to be distinct and set apart from the world in which we live, that we might worship him and serve him all the days of our life. This was Samson's identity. This was Israel's identity. And it's to be our identity as well. We belong to him. And we're called to live distinctly as his people who are consecrated to him. That means we're to be different. Back to the narrative. Given 
his Nazarite upbringing and knowing of the Spirit stirring in his life, we now then expect Samson to do wonderful things as he begins to his ministry. So it's really quite shocking to hear what direction he turns. In fact, when you read chapter 13, you begin reading 14, you're wondering, if, did I miss a chapter between that? Because it just doesn't seem to connect. And that relates to my second point, and that's this, the danger we face. Though Samson was raised to deliver Israel from the Philistines, he makes a surprising, a surprising move which would, in fact, unite him more to the Philistines than he'd previously been because he desires to marry one of them. He travels from his hometown, we read there in 14, 2 and 3. He travels to his hometown and, and comes and goes freely, meaning, again, showing there's not a lot of oppression with the way they were being ruled. He comes and goes freely, and he comes back home and says, Parents, you're not going to believe what I've seen. And he hadn't even met. I've seen the girl of my dream. He hadn't met her. He's just seen her. Okay? And what does he say to his father? Get her for my wife. Now, you need to understand this would have been extremely disrespectful in Israelite culture because the father would normally initiate uh, the choosing of a wife for his son, initiate that search, and you've seen that with the patriarchs. But when his parents then questioned why, they questioned why they said, why would you choose an uncircumcised, a pagan woman, Philistine woman, why would you choose that over one of God's people? His response was simply this. Get her for me. She is right in my eyes. What's he communicating? Well, he's communicating his disdain for God-given authority. He's now governed by his passions, what he's seen, and that's all. That's all he's interested in. He doesn't care what the desires of his parents are. He doesn't care what God has commanded him. You see, God had commanded his people. He says there in Deuteronomy chapter 7, 1 through 4, he says, listen, when you enter the land, do not intermarry with those from other nations within the land. Why? Because they will turn your hearts away from following me. They will turn your hearts to serve other gods. Well, that's where Samson heads. What traits does he begin to display? Traits we're going to see developed in his life, demanding impulsive, disrespectful, unteachable, compromising, lack of self-control, isolating himself from his people. Uh, there's a lot there. He's definitely not starting out on the right track, immediately fraternizing with the very people that were oppressing God's people. Hearing of this, of Samson's abrupt about face from his consecration to now his desire to unite with a Philistine woman, it should have sent off all kind of alarms to the Israelites. What's going on here? What's going on here? And it should have sent off alarms because it should have automatically made him stop and think, we have a pretty comfortable relationship with the Philistines ourselves. You see, Samson's conduct was simply a picture of their own. And if they looked and said, were shocked by Samson, they ought to say, what are we doing? This is us. This is what we've done as we've aligned ourselves with the Philistines. You see, they, had, they were living peacefully among them. Basically, all distinctions between God's people and them were blurred at best. They weren't crying out for Deliverance, life was not too bad for them. Things were pretty good. 
So what harm could come from worshiping with them and their God, worshiping the gods with them? They were in much greater danger than they could even begin to imagine. Tim Keller writes, I think a great point here, that Israel's capitulation to the Philistines is far more profound and complete than any of their other previous enslavements. In the past, they groaned because their domination was military and political. But now, the people are virtually unconscious of their enslavement because its nature is that of cultural accommodation. They had completely adopted and adapted to the values, mores, and idols of the Philistines. Bottom line, they were on the verge of being eliminated, not by means of extermination, but by means of assimilation. How is it with us as we read a narrative like this? Sure, we're stunned by Samson's radical departure uh, from his consecrated calling. We're saddened that the Israelites again and again are embracing other gods and, and they've adopted the ways of the Philistines. But do not we face a similar danger in our own lives, threatening our own distinctiveness as God's people when we accommodate ourselves to the culture in which we live? You know, it's so interesting. When we talk about the world, when the church talks about the world as our enemy, we often refer to how it's opposing us. But we need to understand that our greatest threat from the world comes uh, not when our culture opposes us, but when it entices us. When we're enticed to follow them. When we feel so at home in the world, it's so understanding acceptable of their ways that we become assimilated into the culture. We start to lose our distinctiveness and we begin adopting their values in worshiping their idols rather than following after the Lord our God. You see, we can become so immersed in our culture that rather than being in the world, the world is in us. So we need to ask ourselves, why is that happening? We're called not to conform, be conformed to the world. And yet the only way we won't be is if we're being renewed, being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Are we laying aside? Are we not taking seriously the means of grace so we're conforming more and more to the world? Or like Samson, are we governed by sinful impulses rather than God's word? Have we become unteachable or disrespectful of those in authority? Are we becoming more self-willed, pursuing what we want? Who cares what anybody else thinks? Do we isolate ourselves from community? Those who can speak truth in our lives when we decide we want something, whether it's the right thing to do or not. You know, have we gotten where we don't believe that the desires, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are not from the Father, but from the world? Do we believe that? Or do we believe what, we say, what James says, that we quarrel so much because we want something, but we just can't have what we want, so we get upset about it. We start quarreling, and he says, do you not understand? Do you not understand that you are adulterous people? Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So back to our story. Such was Israel's sinful state. They'd forgotten their identity, their distinct calling. Therefore forsaken the Lord. Yet God, in his amazing grace, pursues them and reaches out to them by raising up Samson. But now Samson has gone AWOL. Samson's left. He's gone in the opposite direction. Has the Lord failed in his attempt to rescue his people? Not at all. 
Because there's another backstory going on here that the narrator lets us in on. And it's the backstory of God's sovereign purposes. Look at verse 5 in chapter 14. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. The writer's not saying that the Lord was pleased that Samson was seeking a pagan wife, because that's clearly contrary to his will. What he's saying is this, that it was God's sovereign purpose to work through through Samson's sinful pursuits to begin to deliver his people. And you're going, how does that work? Well, he's going to show us. Because what appears to make Samson's union with the Philistines even closer, a marriage, God is going to use to separate them. You remember the scene in Braveheart, great scene, where the Scots stood uh, fearful before the English army at Stirling. Uh, And many of them and many of their leaders, they were just content. uh, You know, we're not going to fight. We're just going to stay under this oppressive English rule. And then William Wallace, who kind of a folk hero, even though, oh, we hear he's like this. But William Wallace rides out in front of him with his face painted blue, and he he charges them to stand up to take a stand. And he ends with that rallying cry. Great, great comment. They may take our lives, but they will never take our freedoms. You know, and we all get pumped up by it. Remember what happens next, though? He then rides up to the front, to the very front, and he rides up beside his friend Hamish, who asks him, well, what are you doing? And William Wallace replies, I'm going to pick a fight. That's what God is doing. God says, I'm going to pick a fight. And you know who's going to be my man to pick that fight? It's going to be Samson. And that's what he's doing here. You see, God was determined to restore Israel's distinctiveness and their sense of covenant identity with him by means of disruptive grace he was going to send into their lives. He's going to shake things up. He was going to pick a fight with the Philistines, and he was going to do so using Samson as a wedge, not to unite them more, but to divide them, to separate them, to drive them apart as his marriage ultimately leads to alienation rather than unity. That's where the narrative takes us. 14, 5 through 8. So Samson heads back to, to Timnah with his parents, and then he's, he's going back there. His parents are going along with it. He's walking through the vineyards, not the best place for a, a Nazarite to be, but he's walking through the vineyard, and he encounters a roaring lion. And this God's spirit rushes upon him, it says there, and he barehandedly ripped this lion apart just as one tears a young goat. Okay. I don't know what that means. As one tears, you know, it sounds like it was a common practice. Oh, yeah, he did this just like we tear goats around here. You know, like, sorry, honey, I'm heading out with the guys. We're going to go tear a few goats, and they'll be back in a little while. I don't know what he does. I've never seen anybody tell me what he did. But he tore it apart. He tore goats apart. He rips this lion apart. Credible. Despite his waywardness, God is saying, Samson, my strength is available for you to do my work. Why is this added? Well, we'll see. Verses 8 and 9. He heads back later to marry the woman. He turns aside to see the remains of the lion, and behold, he finds honey uh, in his carcass. 
So he takes some, he eats it, and he gives some to his parents, but he doesn't tell them where he got it. Why do we need to know all this? Was that really that significant? Absolutely it was, because it was a direct violation of his Nazarite vow to go near a dead body. What would that do? That would render him unclean. If he's rendered unclean, you know what happens? He's to separate himself again, and all his hair gets cut off. But even more, from Samson's perspective, it means my marriage would be delayed. I won't be able to make my marriage. Because he's headed down for this seven-day feast. That's not what he wants to do. So he disregards his vow of consecration again to have what was right in his own eyes. Picking up at 10 through 18. So he prepares this customary marriage feast, seven-day-long affair that they had in which the marriage was con- before the marriage was consummated. It's kind of like a bachelor party on steroids here. Uh, really, the word feast here is a drinking party. That's the Hebrew word. This is a drinking party. There's a lot of alcohol being consumed. And we could easily assume that Samson had his fair share, which, by the way, would have been another violation of his Nazarite vow. Well, he goes down there by himself with his parents. So he said, well, you don't have your groomsmen. We'll, have, we'll give you 30 guys. And you thought you had a big wedding. I, we had nine groomsmen and two ushers, 30. I, you're like, oh, we got 30 groomsmen. I'd like to put those in order somewhere. But um, it's a wedding consultant. But he had 30 groomsmen. He said, so he gives them 30 groomsmen, Philistine groomsmen. Some believe they also functioned as security guards here to keep an eye on him because he's uniting with one of their own. So Samson here in the festivity said, hey, let's play a game of Final Jeopardy. And so what he does, he says, listen, I will give each of you a fine suit of clothes if you can guess this riddle. But if you can't, then each of you have to give me a fine set of clothes. Now, Samson wasn't worried about it. He, he thought he had pretty good odds in his favor. You know why? Because bees don't normally build hives in carcasses of animals. So he said, you know, this is a great way for me to begin my life with this uh, Philistine woman. I'll now have a brand new wardrobe of 30 sets of clothes. Well, they weren't able to figure it out for three days. And they were concerned, and so they went to his wife, and they started threatening her and her family. So she pleaded with Samson for days, nagging him and whining and crying and playing the poor me trump card. You hate me. You hate me. If you really love me, if you love me, you would tell me you wouldn't keep secrets from me. Why are you doing this? And it goes on and on and on and on and on until the seventh day. Okay, here's the answer. I've had enough. He gives her the answer. So what does she do? She gives them the answer. So what do they do? They come with the answer right before the sunset. And so they give him the answer in the form of a question. So he is upset. He charges them with manipulation. You've been digging where you shouldn't have been. You've been plowing uh, where you shouldn't have been with my wife, whom he calls a heifer. Now, any of you guys that hope to be married one day, don't call your wife a heifer, your wife-to-be, your bride-to-be. Even after she's wife, don't call her a heifer, okay? That's just not one we should be using. But he calls her a heifer. You got an idea where that relationship's going. 
Anyway, he's upset, but he's going to make good on his end of the deal. So what, what does he do? Whoa, the Spirit of God comes upon him. The Spirit of God comes upon him. The Spirit of God leads him to go 25 miles away to Ashkelon, which is a big, one of the five big Philistine cities. And he goes down there, and what does he do? He finds 30 guys that are all dressed up around town, and he just kills them single-handedly. He wrecks havoc on the city like Wreck-It Ralph. He just comes in and wipes them out. And then he says, great, strips them of their clothes, leaves behind 30 bodies lying naked in the streets, takes the clothes back, here are your clothes I promised to give you. I met up my end of the deal. He is ticked off, as you can imagine. He's ticked off the whole thing, but he doesn't have anybody else to blame but himself. He's the one who picked the riddle. He's the one who initiated, I mean, picked the woman. He's the one who initiated the riddle. He's the one who suggested the wager. He's the one who gave the answer away. But he's still mad. So what does he do? Forget her. He goes home. Now, we're not told how the Philistines respond to this, but you know things are getting tense. I mean, imagine asking, what was that? Who was that? It's 30 of the men are dead. You know, and we're stunned as readers. It's such a display of vengeful passion, uh, vengeful passion on the part of Samson. But, folks, we cannot lose sight of the backstory, what God was doing behind all this. You see, God was using this, taking advantage of this opportunity against the Philistines. So he could disrupt the peaceful harmony that existed between them. That he could expose the spiritual complacency of his people. So they would once again see their need for deliverance. That's what he's doing. Bottom line, God is overruling evil for good, sending disruptive grace into the very lives of his people who had aligned themselves with the Philistines. And you know he'll do that with us. If he needs to, he'll bring situations into our lives to disrupt them, to drive a wedge between us and the world in which we live. He will be relentless in his grace because he cares that much about us that he'll do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to rescue us from our idolatry and to lead us back to him in repentance and faith. He will do whatever it takes to shake us out of our spiritual complacency and our sinful comfort. You know, sometimes when we find ourselves going through difficult times, maybe at work or relational hardships or financial struggles, you know, and whatever kind of problem it is, and we sometimes wonder, God, where's your grace? Why aren't you helping me through this? Why aren't you getting me through this? And, you know, we may need to stop and remember that God's grace doesn't always initially bring relief but it might actually disrupt our lives. So we remind again of our need to look to him. Understand that God used a flawed deliverer to deliver a flawed people by means of disruptive grace makes us so much more aware of the deliverance we need. As we consider how we could fall, In spite of our call, like Samson and Israel did, we realize we need one greater than Samson to deliver us. We need one who's not like us, who also needs to be rescued like Samson did. We need one who's holy and consecrated to God, 
who was tempted in all things, yet did not give in to sin. We need one who came to do the Father's will, and at the end of his mission said he did accomplish what the Father had sent him to do. You see, we need not only one who can begin our deliverance, but we need one who will bring it to completion. Samson was not God's man to bring it to completion. With the Philistines, David was. But even David couldn't conquer all of our enemies, including the sin of his own heart. And both Samson and David point us forward to Jesus. You see, it's hard to read Judges 13 and not think of Luke 1, 2, and 3, and 4. You realize that? Where an angel told Mary she would conceive and have a son who was to be named Jesus, which means the Lord is salvation. Where Jesus is circumcised and consecrated to the Lord by his parents at the temple. Where we're told only of his upbringing, just like Samson's very little, that he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Where then, full of the Spirit, he goes forth, but he resisted temptation. Beginning his ministry with those words from Isaiah, where he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus is our salvation. You know, and what a reassurance it is to know that God will not allow Samson's sin or Israel's sin or our sin, or for that matter, he will not allow any sin in the world to disrupt his plan, his sovereign plan to redeem his people. How do we know that? Because the greatest sin that has ever occurred in the history of the world happened with the crucifixion of Christ. But as Luke tells us in chapter 2 and chapter 4 of Acts, that all of that, that the crucifixion of Christ was according to the predetermined plan and purpose of God in order to secure our redemption. What a deliverance God has secured for us through a deliverer we have in Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us enough that you will do anything that is necessary to rescue us from our enemies, including our own sinful hearts. Even like sending disruptive grace into our lives to wake us when we grow spiritually complacent, or we, when we commit ourselves to sin, sinful conformity to the world. And Father, we thank you you proved that by sending your very own Son as our deliverer to secure our redemption, one who wouldn't fail like others, did in the days of Judges, but one who would secure our redemption through his life, his death, and his resurrection. Oh God, help us by your grace not to lose sight of our distinct calling and our identity in Christ as your treasured possession. May we grow in appreciation for your relentless and your disruptive and your redeeming grace. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.